book. Uh, I love the book of Ephesians, and we'll be spending a great deal of time here, as you can already tell. We're going to pick up reading again in verse 15. We did the same thing last Lord's Day. Read down to verse 23. But the text this morning is, again, I'm going to be focused on verses 19 and 20. And, but I want you to get those two verses within the context of where they lay. And so Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15, Wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, and love unto all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward, who believe, according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come, and hath put all things under his feet, and given him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who filleth all in all. You notice that I emphasize the word and as we have gone down through that text. There's a reason for that. There is a Greek word that translates into English and that connects things together so that they're inseparable. And that's the word Paul is using. Every statement he makes is connected to the previous one and the one after so that everything that he is saying cannot be separated out. But all of it fits together according to the plan and purposes of God in working out our salvation. When the Apostle Paul spoke of the exceeding greatness of God's power, in verses 19 and 20, he was speaking of the mighty power of God, which was directly associated with two events. First, the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ from the dead and from the grave. And secondly, the ascension of our Lord Jesus Christ to take his place on the right hand of God the Father. Those two acts have a direct implication to the life of a true child of God. They are not simply doctrines that we should know and understand. They are doctrines which have a direct application to Christian living. There is a method of preaching that sets forth the word of God in a clear and biblical manner. It is mostly didactic. That means it's just teaching and leaves the hearer with a good understanding of doctrine and theology. There is that kind of preaching. But that kind of teaching and preaching does not change the life of a child of God. All it does is fill the mind with doctrinal facts so that arguments even could be made but nowhere, brethren, in the New Testament is that kind of teaching and preaching acceptable. Always in the scriptures, Christian doctrine is closely associated with Christian practice. I have said for years in a ministry, what you believe determines how you live. That is true of a lost person. Of a person outside of Christ, what he believes determines how he lives. But it is especially true of a child of God. What they believe determines how they live. 
That's what Paul is dealing with here. When he is speaking of the exceeding greatness of God's power, he's not talking about some uh, theological uh, term or terms that have no meaning in life and living. He's talking about that which changes the life of a child of God. Doctrine always has a practical application in the life of a true Christian. Always. When the Apostle Paul spoke of the exceeding greatness of God's power, he was speaking of a continual demonstration and a continual working of God's power and God's grace in the life of God's children. God didn't just come to you as a lost person, save you and say, okay, bud, you're on your own. Do the best you can. No. When God saves people, God is actively involved in their salvation. And God, from that moment, stays with them, working in them both the will and the do of His good pleasure. Last week we saw a direct connection between the phrase, the exceeding greatness of the power of God in the life of a child of God and the grace of God. We saw the definition of the word grace uh, to be the divine influence upon the heart with its reflection in the life. That is, what God does on the inside shows up on the outside. And if God is working, then it's going to show up. And if God's not working, that's going to show up too. And so, divine grace, divine influence upon the heart with its reflection in the life. We saw also the word grace associated with other English words. Words like strength and power in the life of a child of God. We showed you the scriptures last week on that. We saw that the exceeding greatness of God's power was effectual and irresistible. We saw that the Apostle Paul in this very epistle uses the word effectual as it relates to the grace of God and the power of God in his own life. This morning I want to continue to open up this doctrine of the exceeding greatness of God's power as it relates both to the resurrection and to the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ and to show us uh, from the Word of God, or show us that the Word of God teaches that both of those events have a profound impact upon the life of a child of God. The resurrection of Jesus Christ and the ascension of Christ. Both of those events, recorded in the Scriptures, have an impact upon the life of the child of God. We'll start with the resurrection. First, the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ is from the dead and from the grave is a demonstration of the power of God and it is an important doctrine. It is directly relates and has an impact upon the doctrine related to the salvation of sinners. Paul deals with this in the next chapter. Last Lord's Day I said to you that in the next chapter, the first ten verses of chapter two, Paul opens up even more about what he's talking about, about the exceeding greatness of God's power being demonstrated in our life. In chapter two, verses five and six, he writes, even when we were dead in sins, hath he hath quickened us together with Christ, by grace you are saved, and hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ. Just a few verses after introducing to us the exceeding greatness of the power of God, he speaks to them of that power having had an irresistibly effectual impact upon their lives. He speaks of them of having been dead in sins, spiritually dead, and separated from God, and separated from spiritual life. This is the condition of every sinner. But he is not uh, at a loss as to how Christians are saved, how sinners are come to a living relationship with God. He says that God did something. He quickened us. 
He brought us to life. The old English word quickened. He brought us to life and that in connection with Jesus Christ, His Son. And then not only did He quicken us, that is bring us to life. He that hath the Son hath life. Didn't Not only did He bring us to life, but He raised us up together with Him. Spiritually speaking, Paul views Christians as already seated in the heavenly places with the Lord Jesus Christ. Already there. And he's teaching the Christians here at the church at Ephesus about this doctrine because that doctrine affects the way we live. Raised us up together because of our union with the Lord Jesus Christ. God views us as having been raised from the dead. And God views us as sitting at the right hand with the Son of God. So it affects the doctrine of salvation. It affects the doctrine of justification. Paul writes in Romans chapter 4 and verse 25, Who hath delivered us, for, or who was delivered for our offenses, and was raised again for our justification. Romans 4 and verse 25. The resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ then becomes proof, evidential proof, that His work on Calvary's cross was accepted by the Father. What He accomplished on behalf of sinners was accepted on their behalf by God in heaven. And the resurrection proves that. He took sin. He who knew no sin became sin for us. And in that state, God judged him in our place for our sin. Be careful with some of the new translations. They say, he that knew no sin became a sinner. Some more modern teaching says he became a sinner. He did not become a sinner. He became sin for us. Their language there is very critical to understand. He took our sin and God judged him for that. God separated him. Remember the language of Christ. Why have you forsaken me? But three days and three nights later, he is raised from the grave and he ascends into heaven and takes his place next to the Father, no longer forsaken. Sin has been paid for. Sin has been removed. And God has accepted what Jesus Christ has done on our behalf. God has approved it as something acceptable to Him. And when we repent of our sins and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior, we are declared as righteous by the Father and by God Himself. And being declared righteous, God then declares that we are justified. There is not a sin between us and God. It has all been removed because of what Jesus Christ has done on our behalf. And that brings a child of God into a place of peace. Paul writes in Romans chapter 5, Therefore being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Our justification by faith in Jesus Christ came as a result of the death, the burial, the resurrection, and ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. You cannot separate the resurrection from his death. There's a lot of talk about him dying and being buried, but he rose again, and that by the exceeding greatness of the power of God. Our Lord's Resurrection not only affects the doctrine of regeneration, what God does to save a sinner, does not only affect the doctrine of justification, what God does in saving us. He took our sin and gave us the Son of God's righteousness. But it also affects several aspects of our practical life as Christians. Now, I want us to go to the book of Galatia, uh, Romans. To the book of Romans. In Romans chapter 6. <clears throat> because we're going to be looking at some of the verses here. I will not take time to expand the 
15 or so verses that we may be looking at this morning, but I want us to at least look at it. Romans chapter 6. First, the doctrine of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is demonstrated in believer's baptism. We are testifying in believer's baptism that the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ has changed our life, has had an impact in our life. The doctrine of believer's baptism is a picture of what God has already done. And it is a public testimony of what God has already done. And Paul argues this in Romans chapter 6. It says in verse 1, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? What's the answer to that? Can a child of God continue in sin just to prove that grace abounds over sin? The answer is God forbid. God forbid you would even think it, much less do it. How shall we that are dead in sin live? That's a key word. Live any longer in it. He's not saying that we that are dead in sin do not have the possibility and even the practice sometime of failing God and sinning against God. But he's talking about living in it. Verse 2. Verse 3. Know ye not. Now he draws that the doctrinal implications of their believer's baptism. Know you not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. The Greek word behind the word into his death it means in relation to his death. We were baptized in relation to his death. We testified that his death had an impact upon our lives. His death removed our sin from us. Through his death, we have been forgiven. Through his death, we have new life. Paul goes on to say, Therefore, we are buried with him by baptism. That is, through the means of believers' baptism. Into, in relation to his death. Into his death. That... Here is the purpose. Here is the purpose of the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That, like as, wow, powerful, just like as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Paul argues here that our baptism is a testimony of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ into life is a testimony that we also died with him, were buried with him, and rose to walk in newness of life. So the direct application of the resurrection for us is that when God saves us, he gives us a new life. He changes us. Again, because of our union with the Lord Jesus Christ, we are viewed through believer's baptism. God views us as having died with Christ, having been buried with Christ, and having risen with Christ. That doctrine has an impact upon our personal and practical Christianity. Paul points or paints a picture of believers' baptism going in two directions. First, he looks at it from this direction, the death and the burial of Christ. And he says that the death and the burial of Jesus Christ has had an impact in your life. That when you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as your substitute, as the one who bore your sin in your place before God, and who removed your sin in your place before God. As our substitute, as God's wrath fell on him so it would not fall on us, we view him as having taken our place. We were there, as it were, in him when all that took place. But he also views it as a future thing. That is, not just past, but also regarding the resurrection. Because of our union with the Lord Jesus Christ, not only is this Death became our death. Not only did his resurrection become our resurrection, 
or his burial became our burial, but his resurrection also became our resurrection. That's the language of the next verses. Believer's baptism is a picture of new life already given to us by Jesus Christ. It is a public testimony that what was old has died, has been buried, and something new has risen in its place. I was dead in sins and trespasses, and God saved me and quickened me, and something new was put in its place. That old stony heart was taken out and something new was put in its place. A new heart will I give you. Everything about the scriptures speaks about when God saves a sinner, He does something new in their life. Something they can't do. But something He can. It also testifies that we have eternal life. We have a new life given us by Jesus Christ. It affects the doctrine of practical sanctification. This doctrine of resurrection affects the way you live daily as a Christian. Listen to Paul beginning in verse 5 of Romans 6. And we won't stop again for every verse, but we will read them. For if, when, if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death. If that actually took place, then something else is going to have to take place. And that is, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. What is the likeness of his resurrection? We'll get to that. Knowing this, Paul says, that our old man is crucified with him. That, in order that, in order that, the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. Paul is not saying here that a Christian cannot fall into sin. But he may not at times practice sin. But what he is doing here is he is saying very plainly, we are not the slave of sin. Sin does not rule us anymore. We may fall into it. We may wander over there to the right hand or to the left. But sin is no longer our ruler. Something else is. Someone else is. Henceforth we should not be a slave, serve sin. Now, if we be dead with Christ, there's this doctrine. We died with Him. We were buried with Him. We rose with Him. If we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Life has been given to us. Verse 9. Knowing that Christ being raised from the death dies no more. Death has no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died on the sin once. But in that he liveth. There's that ETH. There's that continuing action. In that he liveth. He is living not that he lived, but he is living. In that he liveth, he liveth unto God. What is the next word? Likewise. Reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, and alive unto God, living unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. You see, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ has an impact on practical sanctification. We live our life onto God, not onto sin and the world. We live our Christian life to God. He has become the new master, the new Lord. Over us. If we live up to the public testimony of believers' baptism, we will live our life in relation to God and not in relation to the world. If we live up to the testimony of our public baptism that we died, we were buried, we rose to walk in newness of life, we will seek spiritual things. Because we have a new heart to do so. Paul writes of this in the book of Colossians. If you want to turn there with me, go to Colossians chapter 3. 
the book of Colossians, Colossians chapter 3, connected very closely here to what Paul is writing to the Ephesians. In the book of Colossians chapter 3, in verse 1, Paul writes, If you then be risen with Christ, he goes back to the resurrection of Christ, and he goes back to our union with Christ, and he says, if you're a Christian, you are risen with Christ. And if that's true, if you then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. You remember I said that the resurrection and the ascension have an impact on the life of a child of God? Paul in Colossians says, if you be risen with Christ, then you seek those things that have to do with God where God is. Where is God? Where is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? He is seated at the right hand of our Father in heaven. And so our life is spent seeking Him where He is. Verse 2. Set your affection on things above. If He's there, that's where our affection is. Not on things on the earth. Four. You're dead. That's Romans chapter 6. Your life. You died. The old person died. And your life. That new life that's been given you. Is hid with Christ in God. In this text. The Christian life is set forth with two verbs. It is a life of seeking. Seeking spiritual things. And it is a life of setting our hearts upon spiritual things. The word seek means, or comes from a Greek word that means to seek with the intent to discover. The preaching of the Word of God, the reading of the Word of God, the whole of your Christian life, is a life lived seeking to discover God. Seeking to know more of Him and of His ways. Seek with the intent to discover. Seek after. Seek for. Aim at. Someone has rightly said, if you're shooting a gun, right? If you aim at nothing, you're going to hit it. Right? And that is true of Christianity. If you aim at nothing, that's what you're going to hit. And Paul draws the mind and the heart of those who say that they're Christians in this church at Colossae and in Ephesians. And he says to them, seek with the intent to discover those things that belong to God. By the way, this is a lifelong pursuit. Seek. Strive after the things that are in heaven, that relate to heaven. Matthew in chapter 6 and verse 19 through 21, our Lord gave this instruction while he was on the earth. Matthew six nineteen through 21, lay not up for yourself treasures on earth, where moth and rust doth corrupt and where thieves break in or break through to steal. Steady says, but lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt, and where thieves do not break through nor steal. For all these instructions, all these words, to come to this conclusion about Christianity. For where your treasure is, that's where your heart's going to be. That's the definition of Christianity. Matthew six twenty one. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Our heart belongs to heaven. Where is your treasure? The inheritance that he spoke of in previous verses. That is heaven and all the things that belong to God. That is ours. And I preached then that we should be living as though heaven is our home. Not this world is our home. Paul writes to the church at Philippi in Philippians chapter 3. In Philippians chapter 3 in verse 13 and 14. And he says, brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended. He is 25 or 30 years old in the Lord when he writes this. He has written 
more than half of the New Testament. He is in prison for the gospel. This is not a new Christian. This is not a baby Christian. This is not somebody that doesn't know something about God. This is somebody that knows God. That knows him intimately. And he says to this church, this amazing church at Philippi, he says to them, brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended. I haven't arrived yet in this thing called Christianity. But this one thing I do. It is amazing how many times in the scriptures, both in the Old Testament and the New, how God boils Christianity down to one statement. This one thing that I do, forgetting those things which are behind, and reaching forth to those things which are before, I press, I'm seeking, I'm pursuing, I press toward the mark of the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Here is a man who could have rested back and said, I've gotten something. I've written under inspiration of God more than half of the New Testament. I've done this. I've done that. I've traveled Europe and Asia. I've preached the gospel. I've, char- I've established churches. I, I, I haven't app- apprehended yet. I haven't arrived yet. There's more about Christianity that I want to know. There's more about God that I want to know. Remember, this is the man who was caught up in the third heavens and heard things that were not lawful to be spoken. Don't forget who this is. Don't forget where God stood by him in the prison and said, I have much people in this city. Don't forget the relationship he had with God, this personal, intimate relationship. Don't forget the inspiration of the Holy Spirit this holy man of God wrote. Don't forget those things when you read words like, I haven't yet arrived. I haven't apprehended yet. I'm pursuing in order to attain, if possible, a little bit more of God and His ways in my life. How many settle down in their Christian life for what I call status quo religion. They are very content with a Sunday morning religion. Leave me alone, preacher. I'm very happy. Very happy. Glad God saved me 20 years ago. I'm very happy. And I'll be here Sunday morning. If I can. If nothing else comes up. I'll be here, preacher. Don't worry about it. Where's the heart in that for God? You say, preacher, you know people like that? Of course I do. I know people like that. So do you. Where's the heart for God? Where's the burning? You say, Brother Pat, does it, does it last all the time? It goes up and down. I know it does. It ebbs and flows. I know it does. From personal experience, from the scriptures. But I can tell you this much. If God is working in us to will and to do of his good pleasure, wherever you're at today, even if it's in the worst place you can imagine, God's not going to leave you there. If you belong to him, God's not going to leave you here. And some of you, some of you can testify to that very fact. Set your affection on things above. Not only seek, but set your affection on things above. Direct your heart and thoughts. Direct your heart, that is your affection, and the thoughts of your mind toward things above and strive to obtain those things in your life. We are personally responsible for how and what we think. We are directly responsible for our thoughts. Every one of them. When Paul said, set your, seek those things above and set your affection, he's talking about the mind and the heart. If you are a Christian, your responsibility 
this morning is to set your heart and your mind on those things that are related to Jesus Christ who has ascended and taken his place at the throne. That changes the way you look at life. That changes the way you look at this world. The exceeding greatness of God's power as it relates to the resurrection of his son has an impact upon our life. It changes the way we think. It changes the way we feel. It changes our heart. It changes the way we live. It changes our life. The resurrection of Christ changes the life of a sinner. God has raised him. And now he's alive. With everlasting life bestowed upon him. He has life. He that hath the son hath life. And he's not talking about physical life on this world. On this earth. He's talking about spiritual life. Spiritual life. What about the ascension? Well the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ into heaven to take his place at the right hand of his father is also an act that took the exceeding greatness of God, God's power to accomplish. And it is also an important doctrine. And it is also directly related to several different aspects of Christian living. First, our Lord ascended to take his place at the right hand of his father. That's what the scripture says here in Rome, in Ephesians chapter 1. In verse 20. When he set him at his own, that, at, at his own right hand in the heavenly places. So the scripture teaches us that the exceeding greatness of God's power was revealed in him ascending and taking his place at the right hand of his father. What does that have to do with me in 2022? What does that have to do with me, who God saved in 1979? What does that doctrine have to do with me? Does it have anything to do with practical Christianity? Well, the first thought that I had on this is this, that when you ascended into heaven take his place at the right hand of the Father. He took his place upon his throne in heaven as king over his kingdom. And as the book of Revelation records, king of all kings and lord of all lords. He sits in throne. You want to do a study? Look how many times the word throne is used in the book of the Revelation. It is a huge number of times. And it is a critical doctrine established by the book of the Revelation that Jesus Christ is king over all. He's a sovereign ruler of all, over all. And let the rulers of the world, let the madmen of the world, let the businesses of the world, let the nations of the world, let the Antichrist or anybody else you want to talk about of the world, let them do what they want to do in the end. Hallelujah, the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Amen. Amen. And that's the book of the Revelation. Amen. And so does that have an impact on you? Well, seven churches got that letter. And maybe it's important for us to grasp that when Jesus rose from the grave and ascended to heaven to take his place at the right hand of his Father, that that has an impact in our thinking. It should have an impact in our thinking. And have a way of changing our life when we live on this earth. Why did God send that letter to seven churches if that letter would not impact those seven churches? So here's the first truth. And it was recorded in the book of Psalm, in the second Psalm. And it's the first six verses. Why do the heathen rage? And the people, the nations, imagine a vain thing. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord. Yeah, right. Okay? And his anointed 
saying, let us break their bands asunder and cast away their cords from us. We're going to throw off this idea of God. We're going to throw off God and we're going to live our life and take rule over this world ourselves. He that sitteth in the heavens. Who's that? The Lord Jesus Christ. He that sitteth in the heaven shall laugh. And the Lord shall have them in derision. Does that affect the way we live our life down here? Then shall he speak unto them in his wrath and vex them in his sore displeasure. Those, it's happening now and it's coming more. God rules this world, brethren. Let the nations do what they will do. God rules this world. Verse 6, I have set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. Now there's a physical application here, but there's a spiritual one. Speaking of Jesus Christ having been enthroned in heaven. Peter spoke of it on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. As king, he rules the nations. If he opens a door for the gospel to go into that nation, he does that. If he closes a door and the gospel can't go there for a while, he does that. If he raises up a man to send them, he does that. God does that. God's involved in ruling this world. He rules not only this world, but he also rules in his kingdom. When you're born again, you're translated out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. He is king in that kingdom, and we are servants in that kingdom. That has an impact on the way we live. We are part of a kingdom, a spiritual kingdom, that Jesus Christ is the king of. But not only that, because in Ephesians, Paul gets even closer here, because ruling the world, that has some impact on our life. Ruling the kingdom, that has some impact on our life. But look at verses 22 and 23. After having ascended to heaven and sitting at the right hand of the Father and hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things onto this local church. Onto the church. And I see that as Paul speaking to that local church. Does the fact that Jesus Christ is head over his church change the way you think? Change the way you live? Change the way you view Christianity? He ascended to be head over his churches. Paul will open that up more in chapter 2, again in chapter 3, and again in chapter 5. This doctrine of Christ being head over the church will become critical in this book. So much so that as Paul opens up this doctrine, he brings it down to the relationship between husbands and wives and parents and children. If you believe this doctrine, this is how a husband's supposed to act toward his wife. If you believe Christ loves the church, this is how you're supposed to act toward your life. So much so that it impacts our spiritual life in our families. You see, this is not just some doctrine thrown out there that he rose from the grave and ascended to heaven. This has a practical implication in our life. His ascension into heaven affects every one of us. In the book of Revelation chapter 15 verse 3, he is called the king of saints. His ascension into heaven affects the way we pray quickly. Matthew 6. After this manner therefore pray ye, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. What about grandma's broken toe? Yeah, we ought to pray about that. Yeah. Brother so-and-so sick. You ought to pray about that? Yes, we ought to. Somebody's hungry in the church. We need to take care of that. Yes, we ought to. 
Pray that God would provide our daily bread? Yes, we ought to. What was the first words out of his mouth after adoring God in his prayer? Not about us, but about his kingdom. And he closes that in verse 10 when he says, in uh, uh, verse 10 of, 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 of Matthew 6, verse 13 I mean, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. He opens up with thy kingdom come and closes with thine is the kingdom and the glory and the power. Everything about you and everything about my prayer is about you and your kingdom and the glory of God on the earth. Now that will change the way you pray. It will change the way you think. It refocuses our mind upon that which is important to God. It refocuses our hearts upon that which is important to God. It changes the way we live. Paul not only teaches us that he ascended and takes his place at the right hand but quick as king, but he also ascended, take his place at the right hand as our high priest. And as our high priest, he intercedes for us. And he ensures that we are converted. And he ensures through his prayer that we are kept by his power. He is praying for us. He has not lost one of his sheep. He writes to the Romans, Paul does in chapter 8 and verse 31, What shall we say to these things? Well, the answer is, if God be for us, who can be against us? Does that change your way of living? We've told stories about our ministry in India, and we told stories about going into areas that, uh, where, where the insurgents were, and we've told stories about radical Hindus who have marked my wife and I for death. We've told story after story about what God did during the ten years that we were in India. We went to a village. No white man had been there before. And they were going to take us back. Well, going back meant two-hour drive and a hotel stay. And I said, no, we'll spend the night here. And this fear comes upon people's eyes. And not, even the, not even the tribals that are leaders of the Baptist Convention in the capital city will come and spend the night here. I don't know what their problem is, but we're going to stay. Well, the Pat is a dangerous place. It turned out to be a pretty dangerous place. Really dangerous place. We're going to spend the night here. And so we went to bed, went to sleep, slept like babies. Peter was so uh, concerned, he slept on the threshold of our door, outside of our room. And the brethren were so concerned, they had people marked all over the village, sleeping in different places. Got up the next morning, carried on with the Bible conference. Got up the next morning, went to the next village to preach. Insurgents everywhere. So our knowledge, we never met one. But they were everywhere. Came into this area, we're driving in a taxi, we stop, we got to get out of the taxi, and got to get in a new taxi, and, and then go on into the area to where the village is. And I said, what, what just happened? He said, well, that man cannot go into this area because the insurgents will kill him. And if you're in the taxi with him, they're going to kill you. Okay, I'm glad I'm in this taxi, not that one. He turned around and left. We went in. While I'm up on a mountainside preaching in a village, the insurgents come out of the jungle and they give instruction to this taxi driver. When you bring that preacher in here, this, this, and this, and this is what you're supposed to do so we know he's with you and we will not kill him. And we will not kill you. God did that. You believe that? Tell stories like that and a hundred more and people say, wow, praise the Lord. God did that. That's just not for me, brother. That's not just for me, but it's every one of us in this room that names the name of Christ. He is our king and he is our high priest and he intercedes for us. And if God be for us, who can be against us? This is Paul's whole argument. If you're a Christian, God's on your side. God is for you. And I know these verses have been ripped out of their context, but the truth of the matter is this. That the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ has an impact upon my life daily. He is king. He rules over my enemies. 
I have seen men rise up and be put down. I've seen it with my own eyes. I can tell story after story. Men who rose up and tried to destroy God's church. God intervening. I believe that. That's the God I serve. That's the God you serve. You've got an enemy at work. You've got an enemy speaking against you and against God and against the things of God. You've got an enemy at school. There is a God greater than your enemy. He sits enthroned in heaven. He intercedes on your behalf if you're a Christian. And He rules in heaven and upon the earth. And none can say His hand or say unto Him, What doest thou? The promises of God, I made mention of it two weeks ago and again last week. They're important for us. Do we believe what God says about himself? If we do, it'll change our life and the way we live. And that's the point of Paul praying for the church at Ephesus. I want you to grasp something of the exceeding greatness of his power demonstrated in the resurrection and ascension of Christ because that doctrine will change your life. It will change your life. And they were a good church. But they needed more instruction. And what they needed instruction about was not better doctrine, but a better relationship with the living God. And may God give that to us. A better relationship with Him. And that'll spill over and it'll correct a whole lot of things. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Lord, it 